Welcome to On the Porch, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, you just heard By the Mark by Gillian Welch, and that's from her revival album. And we started off that set with Long Ride Home by Patty Griffin from 1000 Kisses. Now, the Gillian Welch song is one that has been influential on our guest, Savannah Sipple, who is in the studio with us today. Savannah is the author of the new poetry collection, WWJD and Other Poems, which explores what it is to be a queer woman in Appalachia. She says the book is rooted in Appalachian culture and in her own body. With a beer-drinking Jesus as her wingman, she navigates this difficult terrain of stereotype, conservative evangelicalism, and perhaps most, shame. A writer from eastern Kentucky, Savannah currently resides in Lexington with her fiancé, Ashley. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Silas. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate you being here. Why don't you start off by telling our listeners what you want them to know about your book? Well, the book is, in a lot of ways, it's a coming out memoir for me. It's poetry through and through. Um, but it, it for me, it just captures a huge portion of my journey into self-acceptance. And the book itself is in three parts, and I tell everyone it's like a progression of being closeted and not wanting to be gay and then realizing I was gay and coming to terms with that and then finally being okay with that. And the whole thing is reckoning it with my faith. And then there's also um, it. the book touches on domestic abuse and misogyny that I've dealt with. And so um, it's really just a journey. Mm. So many great layers going on there. In the book, you make Christ into Mm. a very specific character, Mm. and he's presented in a totally new way. It's very original. I mean, it's one of my favorite things about the book. He's Mm. hip and laid back and, you know, gives us great down-home advice. Mm -hmm. But now some people get uncomfortable if their idea of Christ is challenged at all. Mm -hmm. So did you worry about that or was that sort of, I mean, that's sort of the point, but did Mm -hmm. that make it that much more fun and or challenging or what? I think it was a challenge because I wanted to write about Christ in a way that sort of captured my own experience with trying to come to terms with the fact that I had these beliefs, but also knew, I mean, I've known for a long time that I was gay. And so, um, and in the church where I grew up and where I practiced and, um, so much of my beliefs were founded, you know, homosexuality is not accepted. And so I did want to turn our idea of who Jesus is mm-hmm. on its head. But I also really just wanted to strip it down to the basics of, um, you know, the core of who he is, the people he spent time with mm-hmm. as a person, the people he really cared for. And think about, you know, this is really who he was. What would he do in these situations? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, a lot of modern Christianity or Christianity today boxes him in and molds him into this 
character or this being to fit a certain set of rules or Mm -hmm. I really just wanted to break out of that completely. I love when I hear you read one of the WWJD books Mm -hmm. in in front of an audience because initially they they laugh because, you know, it's a new kind of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But by the end of the poem Mm -hmm. there's a reverence so i think that's a real testament to the wonderful balance you have struck in creating that character is that while it is totally new and and, you know there's wit involved and creativity and challenging our own notions Mm -hmm. you still manage somehow it never feels sacrilegious, and, and you know you're able to still make it reverent. Mm-hmm. So I love that aspect of it, and it really reminds me of that notion of you know a Christian should be Christ-like, and mm-hmm. so your your Jesus is like a person, like a normal mm-hmm. person. So I love that way that's flipped. So it's really interesting. It always surprises me. I mean, I know there are poems that utilize humor in the collection. But it surprises me at times when people laugh mm-hmm. and when they don't. And then it sometimes surprises me, especially now that I've done a fair amount of readings from the book, um, when someone laughs at something that no one else has laughed at before. <laughs> right. So that's always interesting to see how people react. Mm-hmm. Well, won't you read us one of the one of those poems? Okay. I read this one. It's from... The third section of the book, which is where so many of the WWJD poems are. Um, But the title of this one is Jesus is My Best Girlfriend, My Dutch Boy. I ask him, why me? Beg, can't I be normal in one way? It weighs him down, our hate. Makes his shoulders sag, his back bend. He touches the slits on my arms where I try to bleed out the worst of me. Slumps. Bone tired, looks me in the eye and says, love, don't break the yolk. That's a a great one to illustrate what I was just talking about. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, Jesus is my girlfriend, my Mm -hmm. Dutch boy. Yeah. So there's that sort of irreverence. Mm -hmm. But then it's really a very religious, it's Mm -hmm. real religious imagery, right? With him touching these wounds and and all that. Mm Mm-hmm. So I love the, I love that balance you're striking. Yeah, I worked very hard um, because I wanted particularly this section and maybe a little bit of the end of the second section to really capture my coming into queer culture. Mm-hmm. And so then figuring out how to marry that with also the religious coming to turn. Like, it's almost like Jesus and I in our relationship or trying to come to terms with what's different about us now. And so kind of marrying all of those together. And that's probably how I would refer to him. And so, you know. But can you talk a little bit about that phrasing in the title, my girlfriend, my Dutch boy? What? Yeah. So I think that <laughs> um, so much of what has shaped me um, or shaped my queer identity so far has been my friendships with gay men um and so my two two of my closest friends are both gay men and they call each other girl all the time mm-hmm. and so i wanted to capture that 
And then I was looking for a phrase. There was a point where I would have called myself a fag hag Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I, for a long time, presented as straight and two of my closest friends were gay. And so I wanted a term that would capture the opposite of that. And Mm -hmm. so that's where I did some research and came up with Dutch boy. Well, we both know so many people to whom religion has been damaging. Mm Mm-hmm. But also, many others who have found religion to be a great balm for them, Mm -hmm. I think most people I know would say both Mm -hmm. to some degree. There's a lot about the damage in the book. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the positive aspects of growing up so Mm -hmm. steeped in religious culture? Well, I mean, I think that it gave me a sense of community Mm -hmm. and... There were a lot of ways where I felt like I didn't belong growing up. Um, I wasn't a traditional girl. I was very tomboyish. I played a lot of sports, um, which isn't totally out of the ordinary, but I just wasn't completely feminine the way Mm -hmm. all of my friends were, or even most of the girls were. And so, and then I... (sighs) Yeah, I don't know that as a child I recognized that I was gay, but I knew there was something different. I knew there was an attraction. And then there were other things that set me apart. And I grew up in church. My parents, my family was not um, what I would call super religious, but we went to church every week. And so it just, it gave me a sense of community. Um, And I was, you know, in a small town. And so... For most small towns or a lot of places, church is central to right. a lot of things. And so that's, you know, a huge part of it, too. Have you reconciled all that for yourself? Like, you know, as far as do you still feel the need for a congregation? Or are you okay doing your own thing or what? I have not gotten to a place where I, like, long for congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, I have visited a few specific churches that I know are LGBTQ-friendly and my fiance and I have talked about um, visiting together to, you know, see if there was one we feel like would fit for us. It's not something we felt an urge to do. We both feel very strongly that a person's religious beliefs and spiritual life are very personal. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we differ a little bit in our perspectives of it because our experiences are different. Sure. Um, but we've talked about what that might like for us as a, look like for us as a couple. It's not something I've done yet. Mm-hmm. I do feel, you know, at peace with my how I believe and my relationship. Right. And so for me, that was a huge portion of the battle. And I guess writing the book, Helped you with that, right? Writing the book did help me with that because I struggled. Even when I reached the point of knowing that I wanted to come out and that because for a long time I told myself, okay, yes, you're homosexual. You're just not going to act on it. You're Mm going to do X, Y, and Z and focus your energy on work and being a good auntie and all these other things. And then I just realized I just wasn't happy because Mm -hmm. I... There was something missing, and it was that I wasn't being my whole self. And so writing the book captures a whole lot of that process. Not all of it, 
to any extent, but um, it helped me sort of just work through. And I don't necessarily view it as therapy, but just so much of what I was going through comes out in the writing because I was trying to, in the poems, be authentic and be honest about Mm -hmm. what I experienced, whether I was writing about the past or coming out or any of it. I wanted it to be as true as it could be. And so... Marilyn Robinson says that writing is like praying. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that notion? I mean, I think it can be. I think it's interesting as writers and artists, you commit yourself to this thing that um, it's never clear if there are rewards and rewards aren't the point of it. But you commit yourself to the process without knowing the outcome, I think. Mm. Because this isn't the first book I've written. But it is it is the first book I wanted to be published. Mm. And so, you know, you, you write because you feel compelled to create. And this is how I f- feel compelled to create. And there's so much of what I do that no one ever sees. And so I guess in that, in a lot of ways, it is like prayer. Just because prayer is an act of faith. Prophet, yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, so is writing. Mm-hmm. I think the weird thing about it is, you know, even though a lot of our writing does end up being seen by other people, Mm -hmm. it's still such a private act when you're doing it, you know? It is. I mean, it's it's not a group activity, but it's also even, and I don't write a lot of fiction, but even when I write fiction, it's, you're just, you're giving of your time and your creative energy and your imagination. And so it's. It is. It's a private act. It's a very individual act. It's something that you have to commit, be committed to. Mm-hmm. This is on the porch with Silas House. We're talking to poet Savannah Sipple here on WUKY ninety one point three FM. Thanks for joining us. Well, Savannah, uh, we're both we both identify strongly as Appalachians, mm-hmm. and all of our lives, the whole world has been telling us what is wrong with our place mm-hmm. and often how to fix it, you mm-hmm. know, what needs change. But as an Appalachian writer, I think you are really good at neither vilifying nor romanticizing the place. Both, I think, are equally dangerous. It's such a complex region, and to me, you really show that in mm-hmm. the book. And there's there's one big epic poem in the book mm-hmm. that I think is just a definitive poem of modern Appalachia. Um, my students really react to it. But some people in the region are so used to Appalachia being criticized that they don't want it to be criticized in any way, shape, or form. And it leads to some romanticizing happening. Mm-hmm. So with that said, did you hesitate, even as a native, to talk about the love-hate relationship you have with the place? I didn't. And I think the reason for that is because I definitely felt pressure as a younger writer because uh, of the narratives that are so established and that are just stereotyped to death. Mm -hmm. I felt pressure to show what's good about the region and what our strengths are. And that is important, but that felt so dishonest to me Mm -hmm. because my experiences in the region, I have had wonderful experiences as an Appalachian and 
there are so many wonderful aspects of the of the culture and of the mountains, but the I mean, we're all complex mm-hmm. and complicated beings, and it's the same is true of our um of Appalachia, and so it felt dishonest for me to overlook the flaws. Mm-hmm. It would be wrong for me to write about my experiences as a woman and not admit the misogyny and the violence that women experience. And so it's painting an inaccurate portrait. And that is just as damaging Mm -hmm. as only focusing on what's bad. Um, I think. And so I, I was very, very deliberate in trying to capture the complexities of it. Mm. One of my favorite poems in the book is Darling, You're Stain. Mm-hmm. Would you read that one to us and then we'll talk just a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. Darling, You're Stain. Tobacco brown, round splashes on my hands, my arms. The smell of skull, winter green, lingers on my neck when you kiss on me. Every crevice, an open spit cup, every dark flake, a hickey. Your fat plug tucked between teeth and lip. My mouth a pouch where you spread white patches, sores. I'm losing my voice. I've tried to wear you close as overalls, arms locked heavy over shoulders. I want to quit you cold turkey, but you stalk in spinning distance. And these yellow stains on my fingers, your fire-cured taints on my teeth, I can't strip them, can't scour your heels away. So to me as a reader, mm-hmm. I, I interpret that poem as being about Appalachia. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can take it several ways, but that's the way it strikes me. Am I totally off course? No, you're you're right. Yeah, it's in many ways the whole book is a love letter, but there are many love poems mm-hmm. in the book and a lot of them are to Appalachia. Right. One line that really sticks out to me is, I want to quit you, cold mm-hmm. turkey. I lived in eastern Kentucky all my life until about 10 years ago. And even though I'm only an hour away mm-hmm. from there, I remain deeply homesick. Why does the place have such a hold on us? I mean, I wish I could tell you. <laughs> That's why we write about it, because we don't know, right? I think so, and I think, I mean, I think there's something to be said, and I think it has to do with the culture, and I know that this probably exists in other kinds of cultures. It's a culture that is based on so many things that ground you and root you, Mm -hmm. whether that's heavily based in family, and not just your immediate family, but your extended family. But then there's the connection to the land, at least when I was growing up. And I don't know. I'm assuming this is true today, but maybe not to the same extent. I mean, you when you garden and care for the land and work so hard to preserve what you grow and so much of being able to eat or get through the winter it depends on how much you garden mm-hmm. and how much you preserve. That connects you to a place. It connects you to a people. I think that poverty also has something to do with it because there's a kind of dependency that you develop 
or resilience that you develop in learning how to survive in a place that's impoverished. Mm-hmm. And that connects you even more to the land, that connects you even more to the people. And so, um, I don't I don't know. It's just it makes it hard to walk away completely. Right. Well, on that last point you said, um, I was first published about 18 years ago. And in that time, I have come to see the literary world as more and more classist. Mm-hmm. And not being raised with money, mm-hmm. I think often when I'm in a room full of literary people, I feel like such an outsider just based on class mm-hmm. alone, not even bringing in accent or dialect yeah. into it, but just the way you're raised with or without money is such a dividing thing for mm-hmm. us as Americans. Is that something that matters in your writing? Yeah, I mean, I think that class comes into play um, because... <laughs> I mean, my experience is I wasn't raised with money. My parents were both blue-collar workers and worked very hard for what we had. And I was fortunate in that they made ends meet. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was hard. I mean, sometimes it was very hard. And it was paycheck to paycheck. And so I can recognize that I was more fortunate than than some of my classmates. But then I also had friends whose parents had college educations and Mm -hmm. jobs that reflected as such. And I can remember different points growing up and even today where their understanding of the differences between class, they don't even see it. And so I see it a lot with literary um, in the literary world. I think I'm starting to see it more as I do more readings in and travel more for specific liter- literary events. Yep. And so um, there have been times when I felt out of place before I even opened my mouth or even, right. you know. it It's interesting to me because to me, I don't see how people don't notice it. Right. Like, I don't understand mm-hmm. how they just, they're not. Because also these are supposed, most of the time I expect writers to be very aware <laughs> yeah. of a lot of things and they're just often not. Yeah. It's, it, I think it's a topic we don't talk enough about mm-hmm. is the difference. Right. There's lots of kinds of othering. Yeah. That's for sure. There really is. Yeah. Well, to change gears just a little bit, I know, I know that you, we've both loved uh, Mary Oliver who mm-hmm. recently passed away. What are the other major poets for you? You know, Mary was the first one I came to her collection. Dream work was the very first collection of poetry I ever read um the next person the next poet I fell in love with was Rita Dove mm. and Adrian Rich has also shaped me Alicia Ostriker mm-hmm. who I came to later in the last few years came to really love her work um I love Audrey Lord um her poetry and her prose mm-hmm. Langston Hughes one of the things that when I started um, very first conceived of writing this book, and it was a very different book when I first started, but I listened to a lot of blues and jazz and read Langston Hughes and um, 
fell in love with his work in a way. And I had read a fair amount of him in the past, but it, for some reason, I don't know, it opened up to me in a way and it mm-hmm. hadn't. There are a few contemporary authors who have really, I think, shaped me and given me a sense of empowerment, I think. I love Ross Gay's work. I think he's fantastic. Nikki mm-hmm. Finney is another one. Her collection, Rice, um, is one that I will always hold close. Well, um, thanks so much for being here with us today, Savannah. Mm-hmm. I sure appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening to On the Porch. Until next time, be good to one another. Here's Joan Osborne doing One of Us. You've been listening to the podcast version of On the Porch, recorded at the studios of WUKY in Lexington, Kentucky. The show is engineered by John Lumagi and Tom Goodell and is produced by Tom Goodell. You can find the show in its regular broadcast where we include a half hour of music on WUKY 91.3 FM or at WUKY.org.